But now, as we as we get ready for uh, testimonies and baptisms, what uh, we are about to, to witness and what we are about to hear, uh, this water is not magical water. Uh, it doesn't save anyone, and they know that. But I want you to, to also uh, know that uh, and, and to keep that in mind, that what they are about to do is an act of obedience, uh, and they are... Uh, demonstrating their faith and what has already taken place in them uh, as they have trusted uh, wholly and completely in Christ, that they have uh, died to their old self, they have uh, have expressed a desire to turn from their sin uh, and to pursue Christ uh, in, in faith and in repentance. And they're going to identify with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. That's where they're going to go into the water and then come back out of the water. Uh, and proclaim uh, their identification with Jesus, and they're going to be following him. So it's going to be a wonderful opportunity to hear how Christ has worked in each of their lives uh, and then to celebrate with them as they uh, announce uh, their faith and their identification with Christ. But I want to to begin all of this by going to the Lord uh, in prayer, uh, and then we'll have uh, Josiah Kalusik come up uh, and give his testimony. But let's begin uh, our morning with a word of prayer. Father of lights, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We gather this morning to worship you, to proclaim your goodness and your faithfulness, to celebrate it, to rejoice in how you have worked to rescue souls. All who have trusted In Christ, you have brought out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son who shed His blood on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we might be rescued, reconciled, forgiven and brought into fellowship, adopted into your family. We praise you and thank you for how you have worked in the lives of Josiah and Noah and Hayden. And Gina, and we just pray that these testimonies would give you all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise, and that we would reflect upon our own salvation as we hear their testimonies, and that we would rejoice with them uh, as they follow Christ, as we have uh, in the past. And may we just celebrate today uh, and rejoice, even as angels in heaven are celebrating and rejoicing at the moment these individuals believe. Lord, help us to, to praise and adore you through the study of your word, through the hearing of testimonies, through singing of songs. May all be done to the praise of your glory. We pray in the matchless name of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Josiah, would you come up and share how the Lord has worked in your life? Hi, my name is Josiah Klusik. Uh, I've been going to church my whole life, but I've not been a Christian my whole life. I grew up in the church and was surrounded by true believers, but I was not one myself. As a little kid, I loved talking about Jesus in the Bible. I would even ask complete strangers if they were Christians and try to reach out to those that were not. As time went on, I realized that even though I said that I believed everything in the Bible, the way that I lived my life showed that was not the case. Instead, I believed most of the Bible to be true, but I did not believe that everything was true or that it applied to me. I felt as though I was an exception to the blessings of Christ. 
that I would never be saved from my sin and that God did not truly notice, love, or care about me. As trial after trial began to hit my family, these beliefs grew stronger inside of me to the point that I stopped trusting in God to take care of us and felt that I had no worth. I had no hope that the torrent would ever end, and I had grown tired of getting back on my feet after each trial. For years I had tried to end my suffering, but God never let me go through with it, though I didn't realize that it was Him at the time. In my depression, I searched out for different ways to make myself happy, which led to and ended up with broken relationships, a lot of hurt, as well as going down some sinful paths that I'm not proud of. Roughly five years ago, when I once again had been trying to make the pain go away forever, I finally realized that God was the one pulling me out. I finally understood that he did notice me, but more than this, he truly loved me and cared about me uh, and did not want to see me go down this path. This is when God really started to get my attention. The Holy Spirit had been working in my life for a long time to draw me closer and closer to him. With the Spirit's help, I finally understood the bad news of the gospel with more clarity. I had sinned against a holy God. This meant that as an unholy man, I could not stand in his presence, and I would not be allowed into heaven. Since I had sinned against an eternal God, I had to pay an eternal consequence. This meant that I would experience God's wrath in hell, eternally separated from God. But the good news of the gospel is that in his great love for the world, that includes me, uh, he sent his only son, Christ Jesus, to live a perfect life on earth as both fully God and fully man, to live the life that we never could. Then Jesus freely gave his life on the cross in our place. After he had been buried for three days, he rose from the grave by his own will and his own power, conquering death and leaving our sins, which he had paid for in the grave, so that our sin debt would be paid for, and we could enter heaven and be with God for all eternity. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. After years of the Holy Spirit working my life and me getting saved somewhere in the process, I still questioned my salvation. I realized how much of a sinner I was. What I didn't realize uh, is that any Christian can have the same struggle with their sin that I did. I had not understood how severe the struggle could be. I truly had to deny myself and my desires and take up my cross, being a new person, and die to my old self. I thought that there was no way that that I could have already been saved, since I had so many sinful desires in my heart. What I didn't understand was the distinction between salvation and sanctification. Salvation occurs when Christ instantaneously forgives all my sins, past, present, and future. Sanctification is the process that the Holy Spirit uses to change me, so that I slowly look more and more like Jesus until the day that I die. I originally thought that I would instantly start to act differently after I was saved, but the only thing that was instantly different uh, was my heart. I no longer had a heart of stone. The Lord had given me a heart of flesh and his indwelling spirit, so I now could choose not to, or to not sin, and I could act righteously. Uh, around a year and a half ago, I started meeting up with the two great guys that the Lord worked through to help me turn my life around, uh, for his glory and for my good. Something that I finally understood was that Christ needed to be more than my Savior. He needed to be my, the Lord of my life, too. When I was an unbeliever, I was a slave to my sin, but now the Lord is my master. He purchased me out of the slave market with, his, with the blood of his son, Jesus. I am still a flawed man, but at salvation, I was given the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is the only truth, and the scriptures, Jesus is the only truth, and the scriptures state that knowing Jesus is eternal life. John 17:3. Since I am incapable of living a holy life on my own, 
I must depend on him every day and let him guide me in his ways. 1 John 1.9 tells me that when I confess my sins and turn away from them, he is faithful to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Out of love and gratitude for what Christ did for me, I now want to do his will, even if that means sacrificing what I want uh, for what I know would honor him. After I had met with those two guys for several months, I was finally convinced that my sin had been forgiven and I had been justified before God. Since then, the Holy Spirit has been growing me in many areas. I used to live my life I used to live life for myself, had no hope, and tried putting God in the rear seat. Since I gave my life to Christ to use for his purposes and glory, I now have hope. I know that he's in control of everything, and one day I will join him in heaven. I used to be intimidated about telling others about Christ because I felt like a hypocrite. I now understand that I am simply one flawed man, a previously blind man, telling other flawed blind men about the light, which is Christ. Now, as I go through life, I want to have a solid view of the world, seen through the lens of Christ. To ensure this, I am going to read my Bible daily and dive deep into it, as well as maintain a healthy prayer life. I'm also going to strive to be the godly man that God has called me to be. Uh, to those of you who have already surrendered your life to Christ, uh, you're, uh, if you are fighting God for control of your life or are not trusting in him to take care of you, I would encourage you to remember what Psalm 23 says. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. Uh, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Now, to, the, to those of you who are not Christ's own, I would beg of you, please consider the things that you have heard in my testimony this morning. Know that what awaits you at the end of your life is not good. We will all have to stand before God when we die and give an account for everything that we have done in our lives. For those of us who are saved, we have been justified by the shedding of Christ's blood. For you, though, as an unbeliever, it is impossible for you to be justified on your own. Ephesians 2, 8-9, through 9, speaking of believers, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Do you have any questions uh, about how you can experience the love of God and know uh, if you will go to heaven or not? Please feel free to talk to me anytime, or I know that our pastors would also love to answer any questions for you. All right, Josiah, we're here. I got a couple questions for you before I have the pleasure of baptizing you. So, Josiah, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth as both truly God and truly man? I do. And do you believe that he lived the perfect sinless life, died on the cross for your sins, and rose again on the third day? I do. And have you chosen to place your trust in him alone for the rest of your life? Well, Josiah, by that profession of faith, it's my pleasure to now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
to invite up uh, Noah Lopez to share with us his testimony. Hello, my name is Noah Lopez, and this is my testimony. I was and am raised in a Christian home. We went to church every Sunday, and this was a great arrangement for me because I got to play with my friends and sometimes even got to have a donut if we got there early enough. I was always taught to do unto others as I want them to do to me. Obey my parents, say nice things, and overall live a life according to how Jesus lived his. Of course, I did these things because I was a good kid and spankings were in no way pleasant. I was obeying my parents because God put them over me and I knew that. In fact, I knew just about everything necessary for me to place my faith in Jesus. But even at a young age, I knew that there was a difference between the way I acted and the way that the believers around me acted. Even though I did just as good, if not better than my friends, I was still stagnant. In fact, Ephesians 2.1 uh, tells us that I was dead in my sin, and I needed saving from my sin, because if I was not saved from my sin, I would spend all eternity in separation from God. I did not want to admit that I was sinful then, because I thought that I was saved. I had told my friends that I was a Christian, and my siblings that I was a Christian, and because I was dead to my sin, this way of thinking seemed right to me. But it was then, sometime in summer, I think I was nine, while I was in the guest room of our house at around 9 o'clock that my mom was talking with me. It was slightly strange that I would be in the guest room this late at night because my brothers and I all slept in the same room together and we usually didn't go in the guest room. But there was a reason I was there that night. It was because I had lied. And I'm not sure what I had lied about, but if I did not lie, I would have been disciplined. So I did what any sinner would do, and that was lie. My mom made the decision to separate us since my brothers and I were arguing about whatever had happened, and I ended up in the guest room. It was then that I told my mom that I had lied, and I began to cry. She said that she forgave me and asked if I would like to pray with her, and I nodded. After she finished praying, she, added, asked, she explained to me that when she was little, her grandmother has, had asked her to pray the prayer, and she told me that this is not how we accept Christ and proceeded to tell me how it is that we truly place our faith in Jesus. I had at this point in my life heard the gospel, and um, I already knew most of what she told me. But this time, God got a hold of my heart. And once she had finished talking to me about salvation, I was quiet. But then I said that I wanted to place my faith in Jesus. And she told me that that was the best decision I can make in this life. Finally, I repented. I turned from my sin and I began slowly walking towards Jesus. I placed my faith in Jesus, knowing that he would offer me forgiveness, because he is the only one who can give forgiveness. It was at this point in my life that I know truly and fully that I understood the gospel, and I looked to Christ as my only hope for salvation. Probably a year later, we moved to Idaho and started going to this church. I made friends and enjoyed it in Idaho. And I'm confident that at this point in my life, I understood the gospel and had placed my faith in Jesus. But I began to see specific ways that I needed to grow in obedience to Jesus. It wasn't until I attended Shiloh Bible Camp in 2021 that I realized that I was not living a life pleasing to my Savior. 
The speaker there preached about how we must treat Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. When I got home, I realized more and more that my idols were still ruling my life. So I repented and confessed of my anger and realized that that I need to grow in selflessness. Now, to clarify, this was not a second salvation, but a wake-up call to actively start changing my life for Christ. The verse that helped me with these things was James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers, that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Make note that I did not place my faith in Christ twice, nor did God let me go, then pick me back up. But I simply needed to repent for my idols presently ruling ruling my life. I need Jesus to be my Savior and Lord in my life, because without him, I am completely dead in my sin and absolutely cannot please God in any way or by any performance. I began to read my Bible more often and started regularly praying to God. My mom, my brother, and I would read our church's reading plan together, and this helped me be in God's Word. Our youth group equipped me with useful tools and ways to study God's Word, such as the KFCA method. These things helped me tremendously towards becoming more like Christ. I am currently a part of the Timothy program, which is a program for helping young believers offer themselves to God faithfully by serving at Shiloh Bible Camp. This has been one of the most helpful ways that I have grown in my faith. I'm so thankful for the men and women around me that have taught me, encouraged me, loved me, strengthened me, and challenged me. I know now and always that I will serve Christ as my Lord and Savior. And now if you have not placed your faith in Christ, I would challenge you to believe in him. And if you are a believer, I would also challenge you to talk to someone who may not have placed their faith in Christ about the good news. I hope that my testimony encourages you and has possibly piqued your interest. God bless. All right, Noah, a couple questions for you as well. Noah, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth as both truly God and truly man? I do. And do you believe that he lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross for your salvation, and he rose again on the third day? I do. And Noah, do you now at this time, or in the past, and, and now forevermore, entrust yourself to Christ and to Christ alone? I do. Noah, and it's by that profession of faith that I have the pleasure of baptizing you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll invite up Hayden Lopez now to come share his testimony. Morning, everybody. Good to be up here. I'll start. Nearly five years ago, my family and I moved to Idaho. I don't have an exact day that I feel I was saved, but I remember it was around the time I began to come to youth group. Up to that point, I only had a few truly God-honoring friends. I quickly realized I didn't want to be like, I quickly realized I wanted to be like them. I wanted to follow Christ. Hearing Bruce and Thomas speak for the first time convicted me at a level I had never been convicted to before. I realized that my heart was full of selfish, sinful desires. I also realized that the biblical facts 
I was growing up on, I was doing nothing with. I was not living for Christ because I was living for myself. I was living for sin. And because of this, as Romans 3.23 says, I fell short of the glory of God. At this point, I decided I wanted to be in a relationship with God, and I wanted to be a light for Christ in this dark world, as Matthew 5.14 says. Today, I base my salvation on the only true grounds it can be based on. Faith in Christ, God's only Son, who came down and died on a cross and rose again on the third day so that I may be saved. I know I am not able to earn my way into heaven by performing good works, no matter how many. I am confident that my future is secure in God's hands. I know that when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he will declare me as righteous. Because of what I have done, I have repented for my sinful ways. Because of what he has done for me. I have repented for my sinful ways, and I have a chance to start over because of Jesus. Christ has given me the ability to do good works through him and for him. Through daily reading of his word and prayer, I know he will guide me in my life. As Psalm 119, 105 says, your, light, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Since I've surrendered my life to Christ, I can see him guiding me in my every action. My walk, I feel, is one that is maturing constantly. It is far from perfect, but I fully intend to strive for him. I've recently started memorizing more scripture, not only to know it, but to apply it to my life. I will continue to conform to the image of Christ through this. I do have one request before I get baptized, though. I ask for encouragement and accountability to continue to strive and change to become more like Christ. As my brothers and sisters, please hold me accountable to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Ask me if I am faithfully reading God's word and if I am becoming more dependent on the Lord in prayer. I hope that God will use my life as an example not only to those who do not yet know Christ, but also to my Christian friends that I have the privilege of fellowshipping with on a regular basis. Thank you guys for hearing me. All right, Hayden, you know the questions, but I'm going to ask you them anyways. Hayden, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth as both truly God and truly man? I do. Do you believe that he lived the perfect sinless life, died on the cross for your sin, and rose again on the third day? I do. And have you chosen to entrust yourself to him and him alone for the rest of your life? Yes, I do. And Hayden, with that, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. like to welcome up Gina to share her testimony now. Good morning, everyone. My name is Gina Bethanis. I'm also known as Tara's friend from California, to many of you. I also feel so old after 
coming after three young testimonies of these young people that were lucky enough to find the Lord at such an early age. My story is a little bit different. But I am also a sinner that deserved nothing less than eternal damnation. But I have been saved by my Lord Jesus Christ, who had willingly died on the cross in my place, so that I can unworthily share in his glorious resurrection and be with my God in heaven in his time. This is my story. I was born a Catholic in the Philippines. I was baptized in the Catholic Church, raised by Catholic parents, and lived in a country that is almost 80% Catholic. Because of these factors, I never questioned my Catholic faith. I was taught that anyone outside the Catholic Church was not going to heaven is a heretic, unsaved, pagan people that I should stay very, very far away from. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that my Catholic upbringing took me very, very, very far away from the Word of God and a personal relationship with Jesus. Despite being educated by nuns and priests, from kindergarten to college, I was never taught nor encouraged to read the Bible. Instead, I learned to have fear-based relationships between I and the church, its priests, and its sacraments. The Catholic teachings also created a stronger relationship between I and Mary, the mother of Jesus, instead of Jesus and I. In a matriarchal society like the Philippines, this was a very easy task to accomplish. The result was a lack of knowledge of the scriptures, no real relationship with Christ, and no true understanding of the message of the gospel. My faith was based on what the Catholic Church taught, rather than what God said in his word which resulted in my experiencing a great and elongated spiritual darkness. Now, you couple that all with an upbringing that instilled in me a strong sense of complete reliance and responsibility to everything in my life, such as my success, my achievements, my future. And bingo! My life became a continuous cycle of self-centeredness, unabated and unrelenting sinfulness, followed by religion-inflicted guilt that then led me to seeking the sacrament of penance with a priest to ceremonially remove my sin. All the while, I wondered, how can three Our Fathers and three Haley Marys and three Glory Bees could wash away my sins when I felt that I could sin again and just go back to the sacrament of penance to do it all over again. So I practiced a lot of sins. I practiced sexual immorality, rationalizing my earthly desires by, by saying, I'm not hurting anyone. 
I buried my wrongdoings in the back of my head, and I convinced myself that these are my decisions and my consequence alone. I was proud. I was jealous. I was materialistic and always anxious about tomorrow. These led to sinful responses to any trial that came my way, which led to broken relationships, getting into a marriage for the wrong reason, divorce, and inflicting hurt on those that I should be loving. And since I wasn't stabbing anyone or worshipping a golden calf, then I wasn't really sinning. And because I had no idea about God's word, I didn't really know any better. I was unaware that the Bible said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Then, after one another stressful day in the office in the Philippines, I get on a call to one of my sisters here in the U.S. for a catch-up. After hearing my woes, she commented that I sounded exactly like how I've been sounding for the past two years, still talking about the same problems, the same stresses, the same unhappy life I was living. She suggested that I join a group of women that studied the Bible, called Bible Study Fellowship, or BSF, and that she researched the organization's branch in Manila and gave me the website and the physical address of where this Bible study takes place. She said the next study was going to be in a week or so, and she was going to check on me if I attended. Well, I spent the next few days trying to figure out excuses I could use with my sister so that she won't get hurt when I told her I did not attend. After all, checking on the time and address of the place where they hold this so-called Bible study would be at peak hour traffic on a Monday that would take me between one hour and one hour and a half of nearly standstill traffic. To further put this into perspective, the fellowship begins at 6.30 p.m., which means I will have to pry myself from my work at 5.30 which gets me to get there on time. Mind you, my average 12-hour workday at that time usually ended up at 8.30. So, traffic and work would be my best excuse to weasel out of this attending this Bible study. But, as I will soon learn, many plans are in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Two, one, two to three days before the start of this Bible study, the president of the Philippines declares that day, where the Bible study was going to start, a public holiday. What? No work, no traffic, no excuse. And so began my study and discovery of the Word of God. Finally, at the age of 58, I began to read my very first book of the Bible.
the Gospel of John. But it took me more, way more than one book of the Bible to get it. After all, that was the first time I literally opened one. The first time I had to look up a verse and understand what those small numbers in between those sentences were for. I began to learn what the books of the Bible were, why the specific order, what was the Old Testament, what was the New Testament. In short, I began to learn my first ABCs of Scripture at almost 60 years of age. Every week, every lesson, every discussion, God used to unravel all that I have been taught when I was growing up and throughout all of my life. And as Psalm 119, verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So year after year, book after book, study after study, the word of God started making sense in different parts of my life. The studies led me to directions that slowly peeled the onion of truth, layer after layer, and piece by piece, the puzzle was being completed for me. I began to see the love of Jesus, and I began to see the truth in the word of God, and I began to know my purpose on earth. I didn't realize it, but I slowly was hungering for the word of God. I sought refuge and comfort in it instead of the worldly comforts I used to run to. The material world was slowly losing its hold on me. I had begun to slowly give up control of my life to him who loves me, and I'm beginning to find joy in the trials of life, trusting that this is his way to perfect me so that I will lack in nothing. James 1, verse 2 to 4. I began trusting in God's divine plan for me and what he wants me to do to glorify him. And as the psalmist says and prays in Psalm 143, verse 10, I pray to God, teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Disappointments are turning into lessons of the sovereignty of God. Times of hurt are now becoming moments of prayer for strength and perseverance and instances to forgive. Trials are now opportunities when I can decide to choose Christ instead of sin. As Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. If I were asked when I truly accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I would first say that that day came after a long journey towards my Christian faith. God first sent BSF into my life in Manila in 2015. Then he sent my husband Mark who I met when I was on vacation here in the U.S. in late 2019, and we got married in 2020. 
Mark then led me to Calvary Bible Church in Burbank. And then we were led to Pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California in 2021. Mark shared with me also his beautiful friendship with Steve and Tara Lockie, who were instrumental in leading us here to Idaho last year, and then eventually to Ambassador Bible Fellowship in Meridian. What a wonderful and loving God. Then amidst all that, one day this summer, my blindness to the gospel was taken away by our Lord. My eyes were opened to my sinfulness, and I found myself at the foot of the cross, confessing to my God, asking my Lord for forgiveness, and believing that he had already paid the penalty for my sins when he died on that cross and rose again on the third day to save a wretched soul like me. And this wonderful and loving God had led me here today. After being taught and understanding the gospel and accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior, I too would like to be baptized. My true baptism. Because today, in front of all the saints of this church, in obedience to the word, I confess my faith and rebirth in a new life in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And my commitment to dedicate my life with the help of the Spirit to become more and more like Him. In closing, I would like to say that I am so very much a work in progress. I still sin. I still lack humility. And I still hurt people I should be loving. And so I ask for all your fervent prayers in the same way that Apostle Paul had prayed to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. Please pray for me that I may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, so that I may always and forever give him all the praise and all the glory until he calls me home. Thank you. Well, Gina, there's not much to say because you said it all. <laughs> but just to proclaim here publicly, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose on the third day? I do. <laughs> Amen. And have you placed your faith in him and His sacrifice alone for your salvation. I do. Amen.
on that profession, Gina, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. have the other three guys come up here, the youngins and the veterans. Come on up. We just want to pray for uh, as many of you asked that the Lord would, this would be the beginning of a walk that gives him glory and honor. And walk is the phrase used all the way from Enoch uh, all the way to the uh, end of revelation of how God wants us to be an example for him. We don't just talk it. We want to walk it. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we just thank you for the work that you have done in the heart of Josiah, Noah, Hayden, and Gina. Lord, you have adopted them into your family through your grace and your mercy. Lord, they were unworthy of your forgiveness, but you paid that price that each of them deserved to pay because of their sin. Lord, you put your sins upon your Son, Jesus Christ, and He suffered the wrath of God on their behalf. And for that, we give you praise this morning. Lord, I pray that you would take this day, this moment, and you would magnify it in each of their hearts. Lord, that they are publicly now ambassadors for you, proclaiming the good news to those who are around them. And Lord, that they would be not only salt and light to those who are lost, but Lord, that they would be edifying, building up and encouraging fellow believers through the gifts that you've given each one of them for your glory and their edification. And Lord, we just pray that this would be ultimately to the praise of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Children, kindergarten through fifth grade, you are now dismissed. And please stand and sing with us.
thank you for sending Jesus, our perfect Savior, who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because of his accomplished and finished work on the cross. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Like Paul, we can learn in whatever situation we are in to be content. Whether we are brought low or we abound, in plenty or hunger or abundance or need, we can say, it is well with my soul, for Christ is the one who gives us the peace of God. Amen. that was tremendously encouraging to my soul. Today marks the, the sixth year of our church. So on this exact date, September 17th, 2017, we had our first official service at Ambassador Bible Fellowship after about a year of preparations and Over the last few months, I've just been so tremendously blessed and encouraged by all of you to see how the Lord has has been at work in you, to see how the Lord has been at work through you to reach others uh, and to, to minister to one another. And hearing the testimonies today and uh, thinking through the, the testimonies from a couple weeks back as well, I'm very, very excited and encouraged for the years ahead. Amen? I feel like the Lord is at work in a profound way here in our our church body. And I'm also very, very blessed by the fact that right now we feel very united. I love Psalm 133. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Even as uh, Tim Carnes taught this morning through the, the book of Romans, he emphasized unity is one of the, the biggest themes in the New Testament. And usually you emphasize unity when there is conflict. You, you recognize the absence of unity and you say, hey, we need to, to focus on what we need to do to, to, to work towards one another. This was felt in the early church in Acts chapter 6 as there was conflict concerning which widows would be fed by the early church. This is emphasized in Romans 12 through 15 as we studied this morning. This is emphasized throughout 1st and 2nd Corinthians as Paul begins chapter 1 of 1st Corinthians with, I know that there are factions among you. Philippians 4, there's two women who were called out. How would you like to, that to be written down for all uh, prosperity? Yeah. Euodia and Syntyche, tell them to live in harmony with one another. Paul calls them out because they were uh, living uh, in conflict. Then the, the books of Colossians and Philemon, uh, the, the background behind those two books uh, is a, a, a runaway slave who had stolen from his master and then came to, to know Christ when he was visiting Rome or fleeing to Rome and he came across the Apostle Paul and became a believer and then Paul sent him back carrying those two letters to the, the, the Colossian church and 
now there's conflict within the church that needs to be reconciled. And it's that red letter would have been read publicly and everyone is seeing the runaway there. And so there's reconciliation needed between Onesimus and Philemon. And, and most of us don't appreciate peace until there has been significant conflict in our lives. It's really easy to, to speed past that verse that I read in Psalm 133 and think, well, well why is that there? Right? Why is the, the psalmist reflecting upon how beautiful it is to have peace and unity? How, how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. You take it for granted when you have only known peace, but... For those of you who have ever walked through conflict, I always say that conflict is like a black hole. It changes the the gravity of your life. Uh, And uh, it it absorbs time and and energy and thought. It's hard to sleep at night when there's conflict at work, or there's conflict in your home, or there's conflict uh, in your church. Conflict is, is ugly. And again, I, I, knowing that from, from the past, I rejoice that we have unity right now. Amen? It is a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And I want to ask the question of how do we maintain this unity? How, how do we keep this going? If this is wonderful and precious and not always guaranteed, what do we need to do to, to, to maintain what we are currently experiencing? And I want to ask you to, to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I mentioned that, that unity is a, a theme throughout the New Testament, and Ephesians is a book uh, that is uh, emphatically all about unity. Now, Ephesians 1 through 3 emphasizes God's sovereign plan and how He has uh, elected and predestined the people for Himself from eternity past and, and called them uh, together in the church. That His Son died for those people. That His Spirit has indwelt those people and given them a new heart to the praise of His glory. And God's plan from eternity past involves the church in which Jew and Gentile are united together. I know I asked you to, to turn with me to Ephesians 4, but look over at Ephesians chapter 2. You see this emphasis on unity here in verses 11 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen to this. For He Himself is our peace. Who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in Himself put to death the enmity. Now that is a powerful passage describing how the death of Christ creates a new community which reconciles people who used to be at odds with both God and one another. It says that the power of the Gospel, the power of what Christ has accomplished, 
And so that is the emphasis in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. And then chapters 4 through 6, Paul is now going to call the Ephesians to live in light of those truths, in light of the, this unity that has been created by God and instilled in the church. In chapters 4 through 6, Paul is going to issue five commands that they would walk in a particular way. In chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. In chapter 4, verse 17, he's going to call them to no longer walk as the Gentiles, meaning no longer to walk as, as unbelievers. Don't walk in the way that you used to walk. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he, he commands them to walk in love as children of God. In chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he commands them to walk as children of light, having nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. In chapter 5, verse 15, he commands them to walk not as unwise, but as wise. Commanding them to redeem the time because the days are evil. They go by like that. The wisdom requires that we walk wisely. But I want to study this morning kind of the the hinge point of the whole book. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 4. And those verses, again, the, the, the hinge point where Paul shifts from what is to what ought to be now. And having instructed the Ephesians concerning who Jesus is and what he has done, how they have been saved, Paul now tells them how they are to order themselves in the, the church uh, and how they are to live their day-to-day life. And this is an amazing thing because in this book, uh, Paul is going to, to take different aspects of theology and weave them all together. He's going to take who Christ is, Christology, and he's going to weave that together with soteriology, how we are saved. And then he's going to weave that into how we are to conduct ourselves in the church, the doctrine known as ecclesiology. And then he's going to to connect all of that to ethics of how we ought to live. So it's a profound string here. And this is what he is doing in this very passage. So as we, as we read and study this passage, uh, we're going to, to understand how to preserve the unity that Christ has created, really by understanding who he is, how we're saved, how, how the church is to function, and what we are then to do. And if we understand all of that, we'll have peace. Simple enough, right? Like, wait a second, we, I need more clarity there. Uh, and that's where looking at these verses... Paul is going to outline that. In in these three verses, Paul is going to have really two points of emphasis. The first one, in verse 1, he's going to give us a big goal. This is what you need to be striving after as Christians. And then in verses 2 and 3, he's going to, to get into the details of what it looks like and how we go about accomplishing that big goal. Well, what is the big goal that he has given to us in verse 1? To walk worthy of our calling. That is a lofty goal. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He is exhorting, he is strongly urging and commanding. And again, that, that theme of walking, which, which Bruce mentioned over, uh, is seen throughout the, the pages of Scripture, it has the idea of your day-to-day conduct. Uh, your manner of life is how you are walking. And Paul commands the church to live in a manner 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called. There's a double emphasis there. Right? He's reminding them, not once but twice, of what they have in salvation in Christ. And he's pointing back to what he talked about and outlined in chapter 1 of Ephesians. There's a long run-on sentence describing salvation in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And he's saying, think about that, reflect upon that, what Christ has done for you, and then live accordingly. Reach that standard that you deserve that. Now, at the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan, now the, the, the captain speaking to, to Private Ryan after his platoon has done so much and sacrificed so much to go and save uh, this uh, young man, the, the captain looks at him and says, earn this. Right? What do you do when, when others have come and, and pr- to save you and, and given of their own lives and then uh, a man who, who's sitting there, he tells you, do all that you can to earn this. In light of our sacrifice, live well after this. That is sort of what the Apostle Paul is saying here, but to an even greater extent. Christ has died to save you. Are you living accordingly? Are you living like that? Are you living in a manner worthy? And this is not to say that you could ever truly be worthy of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. We will always be unworthy of that. He didn't die for you and then you'll earn it back. Never. May it never be. May we never even try that. Salvation is always a gracious gift of God. But the point here is that we are commanded to be shaped, transformed by the sacrifice of Christ. I love the way one pastor and commentator put this. He says, if God's love is so great, if his salvation is so powerful, if God has granted such reconciliation, then believers should live accordingly. They should value God's love enough to be shaped by it. So day in and day out, we should be reflecting upon the truth of our salvation in Christ. Who he is, what he's done, uh, should impact every one of our decisions each and every day. As, as you've heard, Jesus lived and died and rose again to pay the penalty for sinners. And we are all sinners. We all fit that category. And so that, that sin that may be at the back of your conscience right now, that sin that you don't want anybody else to find out about, God already knows about it. And He's calling you to see your sin, your sinfulness before Him, to understand that unless you turn to Jesus in faith, you're going to have to stand before God one day and answer for that very sin that you want nobody else to know about. And that, that conscience that He's given to you and that feels uh, you're like the, the hand of the Lord pressing upon your soul, that's a gift from God uh, that, that calls you back to Him. And now... Christ calls all people everywhere to look to Him in faith to have a relationship with God the Father. That's what we have seen and heard and beheld here today. And if you've placed your faith and your trust in Christ, you are now called and commanded to live in light of that. This is not a take a dip in the water and then move on and go do whatever you want. This is now, from this point forward, walk in a manner worthy of what has taken place in your life. 
This is the big picture goal of the Christian life. Not seeking to earn salvation, but already, or just merely responding to what has already been done on our behalf. But then how exactly do we, do we live that out? When said, that's, a, that's a really big picture, and that's kind of vague, right? That, that covers a lot of things. Live in a manner worthy. But then the Apostle Paul gives specifics in verses 2 and 3. You could call these, uh, if, if verse 1 was the big goal, you could call these, these are the practical steps. Uh, and in these two verses, we have five peacekeeping attitudes. Five peacekeeping attitudes. And these are really, really important. And these are going to be attitudes that will help to preserve peace in your home, in your marriage, in your church, in your workplace. Wherever conflict is arising, if you apply these peacekeeping principles, the, the conflict will be resolved, if Lord willing. Sometimes we don't submit to these things. But the first of these attitudes that Paul begins with in verse 2, he says, with all humility. He begins with humility because this is, this is really the foundation of all of the other attitudes that he's going to name after this. And this is really an inseparable part of the Christian life. Humility is, is a lowliness of mind that's going to, to treat God and others uh, as being more important than yourself. Humility then is going to, to live out that understanding by never grasping for position. It's never going to, to seek to be first. It's never going to, to seek to exalt yourself over others. That's what pride does. Now, in the conclusion of his parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, speaking of the, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, and, and humility is going to be the foundational virtue, really, in the Christian life. Uh, and this is exemplified powerfully in uh, the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, was there preaching and proclaiming and getting all of the attention. And then he baptized Jesus. Uh, and then who began to get all of the attention? Jesus. Uh, and in John 3, uh, the disciples of John, the ones who are following him, are saying, Hey, we have competition. Jesus and his disciples are out baptizing in the wilderness. We've we got to go and confront them. You baptize that guy. How can he, how can he steal all your disciples? And I love John the Baptist's answer. He, he understands his role. He says, no, no, no. I, I'm the best man. I, I'm not the, the groom. I know my standing. I know my position. I, just, I point to the one who matters more. And, and I love his final statement. He says, he, speaking of Christ, he must increase and I must decrease. I'm, I'm going to grow downward, and he's only going to get larger and larger. Now, that is the attitude of somebody who is humble. And I'll say this, disunity in a family, in a church, always begins with pride. It's always going to be somebody exalting themselves over others. Pride wants its own way. Think of Satan himself. But what did he strive to do? He was created first among the angels, and yet he wanted to be God and rebelled. Unity, on the other hand, if disunity always begins with pride, unity is always going to begin with humility. 
Think about it, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. There's an exhortation. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Then he gives the ultimate example of this. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus being equal with God, like it, it takes, there's a humiliation there just for God to become man. There's an even greater humiliation for God who became man to submit to death at the hands of men. And then an even greater humiliation to submit to the worst of all deaths at the hands of men. Crucifixion. And Paul says, just like that, humble yourselves and consider others more important. Now, that's the, the first attitude of peacekeeping. Humility. The second attitude. He says, with all humility and gentleness. Is closely related to humility. It's the, the quality of not being impressed by your own self-importance. The idea of, of meekness. Uh, of treating others with grace and with kindness. This word is used in, in Matthew 5, 5. Uh, one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Or the LSB has blessed are the, the lowly. Those who be, begin to view themselves with, or act humbly, they're going to interact with others in a particular way, with gentleness. Jesus Himself described His own character in Matthew 11. He says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So think about that. Jesus' own self-description, what did He characterize Himself as? Humble and Gentle. And what does Paul command the Ephesians to put on? Humility and gentleness. That's the, that's the beginning point. Gentleness is how humility interacts with other people. Prideful people run over others. While, while humble people will treat others with meekness and kindness. Gentleness, it's the idea of uh, interacting with a, a wild dog versus interacting with a tame dog. Right, that's how the, the, this Greek word was used. It would describe an animal who was tame, gentle. You'd be willing to go and to, to interact with it. There's other animals you're like, kids, get behind me. That's the difference. And, and Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Isaiah 42, speaking of Jesus as the, the, the servant of God, says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Those who are downtrodden and beaten and discouraged, Jesus handles them with gentleness. A little twig that's almost completely snapped. He, he's able to, to take that and nurse it back to health without breaking, without destroying it. That's what we are called to do in our interactions with others. We are to interact with gentleness. And it's really easy to be gentle towards those who are gentle with you, right? You be gentle, I'll be gentle, we'll all get along. But what's profound is that in the New Testament, 
We are even commanded to be gentle, to correct with gentleness our opponents. 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul commands this, correcting opponents with gentleness and perhaps bringing them to repentance. Titus 3.2 commands gentleness towards all people. 1 Peter 3.16, as we make a defense of our faith, we do it with gentleness. Same word in all of these instances. That there's uh, a, a meekness in our, in our words. There's, there's still a strength to it, but it's not overbearing. There's no harshness. There's no anger and animosity. This is a peacekeeping attitude. So we have humility. We have gentleness. We have third. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. The idea of standing or remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome. The idea of enduring. Or being able to, to bear up under provocation. Now, and, and patience isn't needed until it's needed. Right? And usually when somebody has sinned against us or somebody is not operating according to what our expectations were. Right? Dads, when you're trying to get to church on time and the kids or hypothetically your wife are slowing you down, how do you begin to feel? Impatient. Right? Your agenda is get to church on time. Kids' agenda is, well, I've got to get that toy. I've got to get my stuffy before we get in the car. Your wife's agenda is, I've got to make sure all my, my hair is done up well. well. Whatever it may be, you get impatient when your desires, your agenda, your plans are interrupted. You begin to see, what am I really focused upon? And I want to also say, patience being violated going to happen here at the church. It's only a matter of time until somebody doesn't meet up your expectations or someone sins against you or offends you. When that, when that happens, we are commanded to be patient with one another. It's amazing in uh, Matthew 18 and the parable of the unforgiving servant uh, where this uh, slave had owed uh, his king 200,000 years worth of debt. Think about that. 200,000 years worth of debt versus 100 days. And when, when the, the initial servant was coming before his master asking for forgiveness, he, he asks for patience. The same word, be patient with me. And the point of that parable is that we have received an infinite amount of patience from God. And what are we commanded to do? Part of walking worthily of our calling with which we have been called is to pass along what we have received. And there's a tremendous judgment if we have uh, been impatient or continue to be impatient with those who sin against us when God has been so patient with us in our sin. Romans 2.4 Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That when we are patient with others, we are imitating God, and that's going to lead to their repentance as the Lord works in and through us. That's the third attitude we hear. All of these really fit together. Humility, gentleness, patience, the fourth attitude. Forbearance. I might put this uh, in a different way, of putting up with one another. That's what we are commanded to do here. Putting up with one another in love. 
being willing to overlook the small things, being willing to endure. And usually, we, we kind of do this from time to time, but usually we put up with one another in bitterness, right? Like, man, you know, my, my spouse just continues to do this, or my, one of my kids just continues to ask the same questions, or this person in my growth group, they just continue to, to commandeer the conversation. Like, there's a, a lot of different ways where we can begin to grow bitter, where we refuse to overlook the small things. And when we're doing that, that's a, that's a reminder, that's an alert that we are not forbearing. We are not bearing with one another in love. Yesterday, my, my four-year-old son, William, uh, cries out to me, Dada, make her stop. Speaking of my two-year-old daughter. And I said, well, what is she doing? Uh, and so William's sitting on the couch, and I look over at Magnolia across the room, and she's doing this. Uh, and he's like, Dad, make her stop, make her stop. And I'm like, this is not something that you need to be upset about. Like this is, there is literally no harm being done to you. And if you just look down at your book right now, you won't even know what she's doing. Uh, And you look at, we look at that example and you see like, that's childish, right? Like that's not impacting me. That's easy to overlook. But how often are we childish in that same way? Where there's things that we are not willing to overlook in love. Uh, but this is the command here. If we want to keep the unity again, in our marriage, in our homes, in our church, there's going to be times where we need to be willing to overlook things. We need to be willing to bear with others in their foibles, in their mistakes. Forbearance means that we're not going to be easily offended. And, and this does not mean that we overlook everything. Well, there's going to be a time where we, we need to, to go and have difficult conversations. But when, when should we confront? When, when is it too much to, to overlook? And I would say here's four brief principles. And number one, we don't overlook things that are damaging your relationship with that person. So if, you, if you're trying to, to forbear with somebody, but this continues to be something that's bothering you, you should go have a conversation. You should also go have a conversation with them if this, uh, what they're doing is hurting others or hurting them, the offender, or if this is significantly dishonoring God. Those are not things that we forbear. Those are things that we go and, and have a conversation about. But often we, uh, we have conflict based upon insignificant things, and forbearance flows out of love for one another. Because I care about my relationship with this person, uh, rather than, than nitpicking about all of these things, I'm going to allow love to cover it. Forbearance flows out of love. And we are to orient ourselves toward others in humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. And then this last attitude in verse 3, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is important to, to think through. What we see in Ephesians is that we do not create unity. Unity comes from God. God has put His Spirit in each and every believer. So therefore, we are already united. We're united to the triune God, and we are all united to one another. We don't create the unity, but we are here commanded to be diligent to preserve it. That is our responsibility. God has done something, and now we have a responsibility as well. We are to do everything that we can to preserve the unity of the body and the the spirit 
and the bond of peace. So when conflict does arise, remember I said that there are occasions where we don't forbear, that we need to go and have those conversations. And when that happens, we we do that quickly and immediately. Uh, Matthew 5 says, if, if we know that I've sinned, if I know that I've sinned against one of you, I should leave my uh, gift at the altar and go and pursue reconciliation. Uh, and if somebody else has sinned against me, I'm to go and, and confront them and talk with them about it and seek to win them back. That's Matthew 18. Both parties have a responsibility to, to pursue peace. Uh, and this is what it looks like to be diligent. We don't punt or say, well, the other person needs to come to me. That's our favorite line, right? If they just come to me, there'll be peace. Why aren't you going? Well, yeah, both parties have a responsibility to pursue peace. We have to be diligent in this way, even in the small things. But we also need to, to make sure that we are also guarding our tongues, that we are careful in what we say. And something may be true, but the other person doesn't necessarily need to know it or to hear it not helpful for them. So even saying something that is true, but this other person doesn't need to know, that can be gossip in and of itself. And we need to be diligent that we are guarding our words and also that we are guarding our ears. Okay, this is really, really important. And it, it takes a little bit of courage, right? To say, you know what? I fear the Lord and I care for you. So I'm going to ask you to stop sharing what you have shared. And I'm going to encourage you to go and speak directly to that person before you speak to anybody else about what you just shared with me. Go and pursue peace. That little habit right there and that little act of courage, it's difficult, but it's needed at times. Because we can set our body aflame with gossip and slander. Just one or two sparks and... There's a huge conflict within, again, a household, a a church, a workplace. We have to be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create it. God has blessed us with it. We need to preserve it. So I know we've we've run through this really fast. But I want to look at this in a a different way. These five attitudes of humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and, and diligence. I want to think about them. But what is it? We're called to these things, but we're also, in being called to these things, we're called to renounce other things. And I would say this, this call to humility means that we are all individually called, commanded to renounce pride. And we turn away from it and we begin to fear the Lord. Because when we uh, fear the Lord, when we're living life in light of who He is and, and the reality of who we are, He's really big and we are small. That, that naturally humbles us and elevates Him. So humility means that we must renounce our pride and begin to fear the Lord. Gentleness means that we must renounce all harshness and begin to imitate Christ. That's what we must be, get, be willing to renounce. Patience means we must renounce our own agenda and desire God's will. Are we willing to do that for our individual lives, for all of our relationships? Well, I want it to be this. Well, what does God want it to be? What's God's hopes and expectations for our relationships here in our church family? And forbearance means that we must renounce our rights out of love for others. That I'm willing to be offended and a little bit annoyed. And out of love for others, I'm just able to overlook that. And then diligence in pursuing peace means that we must 
be willing to renounce apathy towards conflict. That we have to actively pursue peace. It doesn't just happen naturally. That we have to act to preserve unity for the glory of God. There's an old saying, you've probably heard of it, and probably misapplied it. This saying is divide and conquer. Right? Usually we think, well, if we're at the grocery store and we need things from multiple aisles, you go that way, I'll go this way. We will divide and conquer. Yes! Made it through Fedmeyer in record time. That's not what that saying means. Divide and conquer is the idea that if you want to conquer another nation, you get them to be divided. You go and you sow seeds of discord. You get them to divide and then you can pick them off one by one. That's what that saying is referring to. We are easily conquered. Easily led astray when we are divided, when there's unresolved conflict and animosity. This is, again, this is the reality of marriage. This is the reality within a a household with parents and children or in a church. If we allow ourselves to be divided, the fractures grow bigger and bigger over time. And we have to be diligent to pursue peace with one another. Let's say this, united families will be able to unite together in a church. And those united families will be a united community on mission. Right? When we are walking in unity as a church, what are we actually able to do? We're able to do what we're called to do. Right? But remember, conflict is like a black hole. When there's conflict in a church, you can't do anything else. You're not going to be effective in going out and making disciples in the world because we're still trying to, we're arguing amongst ourselves here. And praise the Lord, we don't have that right now. Which means that we can do what? We can go out into the world to be salt and light. And we're seeing fruit. And I want to encourage you in that. But that comes because we are united right now. Unity also leads to maturity in Christ. That's the the rest of uh, the beginning of chapter 4. All the way through verse 16. I would encourage you to go read that. Uh, That as we are united together in Christ, that we're going to all, as a church body, be built up. Uh, in Christ and grow more and more mature to the glory of Christ our Savior. And I, and I hope and pray that as we continue to grow in unity and, and in maturity, that we'll be able to, to reach our community in an even greater way. And that's my heart, and I'm, I'm so encouraged by all that the Lord is doing and has done, uh, and I'm excited for the future. And I pray that each one of us in our own household would strive to grow in these five heart attitudes. And that we would be diligent in preserving the unity within our households, it would be diligent in preserving the unity of our church to the praise of His glory. Amen?